welcome to Note to Scene, a weekly podcast that discusses the latest news in the scene and a retrospective deep dive on the nostalgia that we all grew up with. This week, we got news from pop punk's new savior, Machine Gun Kelly, former generic pop punkers Boston Manor, and an early look at first week numbers for Dance Gavin Dance and The Used, and a deep dive on the history of Never Shot Never and how Christopher Drew gave away a shot at superstardom. So let's get started. Machine Gun Kelly released a new song, Bloody Valentine. So for those who don't know, MGK is releasing a pop punk album called Tickets to My Downfall. Doesn't have an official release date yet, but Trevor Barker produced the LP. Kelly has said he wanted he, he wanted to get Franz from Attila on it, Burt from The Use, Youngblood, and even rappers like Trippy Red and Young Thug. None of those have been confirmed yet. This is the first official single. So although Kelly has a history in the scene, he featured on Sleeping With Sirens Alone, and he also flipped Rise Against Swing Life Away in 2013, and that actually features Kellen Quinn. But this move does follow a bit of current a bit of a current trend in hip-hop of rappers at the very least showing interest in making rock-centered music trippy red has teased his rock album multiple times uh, lil pump previewed a rock song on instagram just a couple weeks back uh, before they passed away juice world lil peep and xxxentacion had all teased rock-centered music so coming from Ka- kelly this makes sense and let me just say that the shit that he's putting out is hands down better than 95 percent of pop punk bands in the scene have been putting out over the last five years the songs are super basic and bare bones but they work like the math of this genre hasn't been more right since its second wave in the early to mid 2010s and these songs pull even further back even to the golden era of the mid 2000s like besides blink 182 and technically the last good charlotte album this is one of the first pop punk albums coming out on a major label since the 2000s he dropped the first like i said he dropped the first official single from the album bloody valentine this past friday and it's just a great summer pop punk jam he's not breaking new ground he's getting back to the basics and it also helps that he can actually sing like pop punk has been known for having atrocious vocalists but kelly's like raspy low-end kind of gritty delivery is it's refreshing and honestly it takes the genre back to its angsty days bloody valentine has a great melody in the verses that jumps right into the pre-chorus with a fat fucking groove to it and then it just explodes into a fast-paced hook new bands in the genre who say all they listen to is blink 182 what you need to do is take some notes from blink and this Quit trying to do so much. Like, you're in a pop-punk band. You're not reinventing the wheel. Take a step back. Less is more. Trust me. Bloody Valentine and the other pop-punk songs he dropped, I Think I'm Okay and Why Are You Here, they're perfect examples of this. I'm at an 8 out of 10 with Bloody Valentine, and I'm really, really excited about this album from MGK, which is not something I thought I'd say in 2020. But Boston Manor released a new album called Glue. This is their third full length, all of which have come on Pure Noise. This band is not the pop punk band that you might remember them as from 2015. Back then, they were just a product of the genre second wave that I mentioned during the MGK rundown. They didn't really bring anything new to the table, just a British take on on that wave sound. They did gain a little momentum off of it, though, which I was surprised to see at the moment. There were a couple bands from the second portion of that wave that actually did get some momentum, and, and Boston Manor were one of them. But then it came to 2018, and they returned with a much darker, rock-centered sound 
found on their second album called Welcome to the Neighborhood. I didn't love the album. I think it's far, far from perfect, but I loved the pivot and the idea of the pivot, like both sonically and aesthetically. Unless you're MGK, I always like when pop punk bands pivot themselves outside of pop punk and try to do something else. Because again, unless you're Blink-182 or Green Day, there has been virtually no acknowledgement that pop, pop punk even exists from rock radio. Don't know why, that's just what the shitty gatekeepers at rock radio have decided over the last half decade. And now, without Warp Tour, there's literally nowhere for your band to go and no foundation to help put you anywhere. But this super, super low-level ceiling, it's why we don't see pop punk bands get momentum and actually take off anymore change your sound trust me but anyways boston manor more or less became a rock band and although i still felt like a lot of that album missed it actually did have one of my favorite scene songs the last five years it's called halo it's just this dark fucking rock jam it's on the episode playlist playlist this week highly highly recommend you listen to it it's like if you me at six released a sequel to bite my tongue with ollie sykes but anyways fast forward to 2020 right now and somehow they're still on raw power management which i don't really get they raw power has some weird names on them too but for those of you who don't know raw power manages bring me the horizon of mice and men bullet for my valentine and a couple other random names boston manor is one of those random names but they dropped an album called glue so for starters they didn't double down on the dark rock of neighborhood like they should have. Instead, they went full on experimental 90s rock with this mishmash of other things just thrown in. Lots of electronics and effects and shit like that. It gave it a very industrial sound. There's a song on it called Everything is Ordinary. It's just an industrial punk song with a pretty shitty hook, like in essence. It has gotten stuck in my head a couple times, but it the song just rushes through itself and it never just like it never finds its own groove. Ones and zeros doubles down on that approach even more. Um, if anyone remembers, there was a band on Tooth & Nail Records way back in the day called Joan Zetta. They were actually the biggest signing in the label's history, which means they got the most money right off the bat, which is super, super wild to think about for a lot of reasons. Nothing ever came of this band, but that's, that's a different conversation. But the label sh- thought that Joan Zetta was going to be the Christian version of the Killers. But anyways, their first album, it's called Popularity, and it really, really reminds me of this Boston Manor record just rock songs kind of coded in these unusual electronics some weird structures and these erratic scratchy like feedback heavy guitars personally i like the jones Zetta record a whole hell of a lot more but i totally realize and acknowledge that 80 percent of that is nostalgia bias uh, i put their song i put two songs off that record on the playlist this week get ready hot machete and man in a 3k suit Listen to them next to the Boston Manor tracks that I put on there, and you'll see the similarities. But on Glue, there's another song called You, Me, and the Class War and Monolith. They're probably my two favorite songs off the record. Super interesting. They got heavy post-hardcore vibes out of nowhere. Screaming vocals, super aggressive guitars, nice builds, and some pretty solid explosive parts. It'd be really interesting to hear a whole album like this. But Glue is just ultimately like all over the place. Uh, there's a song called On a High Ledge. It's this eerie electronic track that really that just never really goes anywhere. Only One is another heavier track that has a hook that you've just heard a million times before. Terrible Love is just a shitty lovesick filler track. So like I said before, 
I appreciate experimentation. I encourage bands to do it, but Glue is pushing the experiment button way too fucking far. It's not a cohesive album, and that's where you can get very lost in the experimentation realm. It's got solid moments, but they're overshadowed by just uncomfortable stabs at something more than Boston Manor was and is and just are ever meant to be. Krang, while I was doing some research for for this review, Krang literally wrote an article in support of the album with the title, Boston Manor or the Voice of a Generation. I don't even care if they meant it in an indirect way. That's the biggest load of shit I've ever heard. I know that times are tough all around Kerrang, but you've got to be fucking better than that. This band that maybe like not even like a hundredth of a percent of the population even knows it exists. So slow your fucking roll. This band does not matter that much. Calm down. This album is not that good. I'm at a 5.9 out of 10 on Glue. Their last album did over 1,600 first week over here in the US. I honestly expect this one to do even less, but we'll see, I could be wrong. Anyway, moving on to some other first week numbers. Dance Gavin, Dance, and The Use. So I talked about these albums last week, and Dance is one that a lot of people are actually pretty heavily expecting just because of everything that was building up and how big it was supposed to be before the virus hits. I won't have official numbers until after I've recorded this episode, but I do have the forecast. So I get a rough estimation chart of the top 50 albums every week and it has Dance Gavin Dance at around 17,000. I won't go into the details, but I actually did talk to some of their team after last week's episode about how they become one of the biggest bands in the scene. And I will say that this was truly gonna give their last first week, 30,000, a run for its money, and honestly, maybe even get to 40,000. To put 17,000 total into context, they man they they still managed even without with everything going to shit and them losing their tour and everything that they had built up to this, they still managed to outsell the new Trivium album. The scene doesn't it, it we just don't get very many wins nowadays and to have this one taken away is is seriously so so defeating. So, whenever they are able to do their headlining tour, I highly highly recommend going and seeing it. Dance is a fantastic live band. They're t- tight as hell. And if you haven't yet, listen to the new record. It's it's a fun listen at the very least, even if you don't like Dance Gavin Dance. Now, like I said, the chart I use only goes up to the top 50 albums every week when it comes to the forecasts, and the used isn't even on it. The last entry on the chart at number 50 did 13,200. The used last album, Canyon, only did 11,000. So that makes sense. They aren't going to do more than the shit show that was the Canyon. Their nostalgia only gives them so much reach at this point. Like I said last week, I'm expecting around 8,000, and that's honestly being optimistic. I could see them going as low as five and maybe even a little lower. But okay, moving on to some quick news before we hit our deep dive. Some sad news, unfortunately, that actually broke today on Sunday. Katie Groves passed away. The news was confirmed in a tweet by her brother, Cody. At this time, I'm not aware of any other details that have been revealed. Katie was part of that post-neon wave where bands kind of doubled down on that sound from 2007 to 2009 and just kind of coded it 
it coded everything in like this sugar pop sound bands like breathe electric plug-in stereo he is we steven jerzak those kinds of names um katie was actually signed to rca at one point and actually got a little major label push behind her i believe she was only 30 years old rest in peace katie i send in my condolences to her family and friends this came out of nowhere and it, it was really really sad to hear Fall Out Boys from Under the Coke Tree was released 15 years ago this past Sunday. The impact this album had on the scene is obviously in a league of its own. I don't need to go on a whole, you know, hour-long rant about it. But our good friend Mackenzie Hall wrote a great piece on the LP that you can read at notetoscene.com on how it changed our world. I highly, highly recommend it. Paris, a name that we haven't heard in a while. This is an interesting one, and I, I think I'm going to give my uh, give Paris their own deep dive as the album comes closer. But Paris had a new album coming out called Use Me, and it was supposed to come out this past Friday, May 1st. On April 8th, about three weeks before the album's original release date, the band announced that it would be delayed over two months until July 10th. This is obviously in response to the coronavirus. Paris are now actually on Warner Records, so they are a major label band. Finally, but unless you're an A-plus lister, i.e., you know, The Weeknd, Dua Lipa, Drake, you're probably going to get your release pushed back at this point. So far, they've released two singles from the album, Dead Weight and Give Me a Minute. But what's most interesting about the band's kind of comeback, because they did go away for a while, it really felt like the lack of movement after the shit show that was their second album, it was all over. But now they have a major label behind them. And what's most interesting, like I was saying, is that they finally faded the band into the background and put the focus on Lynn. So we'll see what's going to happen with this. Paris hit the definition of a sophomore slump, and it looked like that was it. They went away, lost all the momentum that they had from White Noise, which is an absolute top five scene album since 2015. Uh, but now they have a major label backing and arena support tour with Halsey coming up and the new music actually isn't terrible. So even though all of this should have happened in 2016, 2017, we'll see what happens now. Moving on, a band called Toothless released a new song called Grinner. So I haven't worked at Alt Press and Loudwire and now XXL. I get press releases every day from all over the fucking place. And I try to listen to the ones that actually do catch my eye in the subject line. And I got one this week that was from a band called Toothless. And I just call this shit kind of chaos core. Think like Dillinger Escape Plan, Car Bomb, The Red Chord, bands like that. They dropped a song called Grinner, and it's just heavy as fuck and tight as hell. It features a vocalist from another small band called Tala, which has Mark Portnoy's son in it. And for those who don't know, Mike Portnoy is the co-founder of Dream Theater. But if you like any of the bands that I mentioned, go check this shit out. It will rip your fucking face off. It's so heavy, and it's so tight, and it's so good. Their new EP, Misinformed, is due out May 5th. Unfortunately, the song isn't on Spotify, so I can't put it on the playlist this week. But if you Google Toothless Band, you'll be able to find a link to the video for it. And if the band is listening or any band is listening, make sure you get your fucking music on streaming services. I cannot stress enough the importance of making your music available where your, fran where your fans can most easily access it. Attention spans are shorter than they ever have been, and you can lose potential fans by making them work to hear your shit. I know it sounds... 
entitled and all that shit, but that is just the truth. So before we do the deep dive, I said last week that I was going to unpack a little bit more of what's going on at Rock Radio. A lot of people wrote in asking what bands are on it, what other bands besides Falling, which who are still at number one, are gaining momentum, losing momentum, who's getting played. So I'm just going to give a, run, a super fast rundown, unpacking where scene bands are at at Rock Radio right now. So Falling in Reverse is popular monster, spending its second week at number one. It has it has it's dropped one percent in plays. It's still got almost over a two hundred play gap on the on the second song, which is now Godsmack's Unforgettable. And honestly, that track is up thirteen point five percent. So it might fuck up Falling's reign at number one and might make it way quicker than I initially thought. But we'll see what happens within the next week. There's still about two hundred plays down at the end of this week. Um, after falling, we have an interesting name, which I am also going to be giving a deep dive episode on when their new album comes out, Asking Alexandria. Their song, Anti-Socialist, up to number 11. It was at number 13 at this point last week. It's up 16.2% in plays. That is, it's their biggest chart, it's their highest charting single, I believe, of their career so far. So I, I would need to do more research on that, but from looking at these charts over the last couple of years, I believe this is the highest charting single and it's looking like it's just building momentum the higher up it gets. So I wouldn't be surprised to see this break the top five and you know maybe give a, give a good run at number one, but we'll see. Another surprising track, a day to remember, Resentment. It's heavy as fuck. I didn't think this would climb at rock radio considering the lack of success that they had on Bad Vibrations. But it's at number 14, it was at number 17 last week, and it's up 9.9% in spins. So we'll see. It's looking like this one's going to be able to crack the top 10. It might just stall out at some point, as tracks do, but we'll see in the coming weeks. I don't, I don't know how high this one's going to get. I didn't expect it to get much higher than 17 where it was last week. So good news from the Data Remember camp. Next, we got Motionless at White, Another Life at number 16, up three spots from 19 the week before. It's up 9.7% in plays. Motionless and White, honestly, their first major label album on Roadrunner, a complete flop. This one, they reverted a little bit to their old sound on some of the album. They doubled down on the rock sound on some of the album. It's been paying off. They've had great radio momentum. They're actually streaming fairly well and above some other big names right now. So shout out to Motionless. It's going to be really, really interesting to see where this track goes. Then we have to take a bit of a fall down the chart to get to the next scene band, which is the Amity Affliction, Soak Me in Bleach at number 42. Actually dropped a spot from number 41 last week. The song has just been kind of hovering outside the top 40 right now, and it's just barely getting any plays. Rock Radio is the lowest genre rotation in the country, meaning even the top song only gets a tenth of what the number one song gets at rock rate or uh, top 40 radio every week. So although this is very minuscule, I understand why people are interested in it, but the lower and lower we get down on the chart, the literally like less and less impact this has. And at this point, 
these songs might as well not even be playing to people. The Used at number 43 with Paradise Lost, it is falling like a fucking rock. It was at 35 last week and it's down 39% in plays. The plays get so small the further we get down on the on the chart that the you know increase and decrease in percentage of plays it will swing very very large. So I tend not to say what the percentage increase was on these tracks, but that does it for scene songs except for fit for a king's breaking the mirror is actually getting some rock radio play at number 47 it had 86 spins last week so that gives you a little context about how little these songs are actually getting played end of the day it's really cool that a heavy song like breaking the mirror which i actually love is getting played on rock radio however small it is and it's cool to see solid state actually get some rock radio play in, in 2020 but okay so that wraps up the rock radio recap for this week. Falling still at number one. We'll see if they can fend off Godsmack next week. Moving on to our deep dive this week. Never Shout Never and Christopher Drew. So what sparked my idea about this deep dive this week was Chris returned to Twitter to announce that he will be releasing a seven song acoustic album on May 13th. It's actually going to be the first music he has released in five years since the last Never Shot Never album, Black Cat, in 2015. So I asked on the Note to Scene Twitter if anyone would be interested in a deep dive on Chris and Never Shot Never and unpacking his history and really how he was supposed to be a superstar. And people really showed up for it. So here we go. What the hell happened to Never Shot Never? So as always, we've got to start at the beginning. I actually read this a long time ago, but I was never able to find it documented anywhere until I did the research for this episode. So Chris was basically a tennis prodigy when he was a young teenager. I found this in an old profile that Rolling Stone did on Never Shot Never in 2010, right after he had released What Is Love. So he had a shoulder injury and it forced him to stop playing. And according to this profile that Rolling Stone wrote, he wrote his first guitar, or his first song at 14 after his dad gave him a guitar and showed him Bob Dylan, and which the Bob Dylan thing really, really makes sense when you get down to the influence of Never Shot Never's music. He wrote his first song at 14 years old after, and I quote, his best friend ditched him for a girl. So the, the first thing I know that Chris released as Never Shout Never was the Demo Shmemo EP, which he put on MySpace in 2008. It had five songs, Smell You Later, My Friend Jane, Dare for Distance, She's Got Styles, and Over the Years. I remember a friend burned a copy of this when I was in middle school, and I was absolutely hooked on it. There was this sense of excitement accessibility about Chris and that's the best way I can kind of describe it he was just making these songs from his bedroom it made me feel like I could do it too and of course the aesthetic this was peripheral to neon for sure but what he did was definitely its own thing the cute hippie aesthetic and a hairstyle that was somehow like always changing but still what every dude wanted at that time Chris in the video for for big city dreams was just like the pinnacle look for scene kids at the time i always noticed back in the day that the coolest you know quote unquote scene stars never really wore band shirts in the video chris just has on skinnies 
moccasins with no socks, a plain gray hoodie, and a blue puppy vest over it, and hair that just molds around his face. Like the bangs swoop over his eyes, and the rest kind of falls down the side of his cheeks. To be honest, I tried to pull those kinds of cuts off so many times back in the day. Trust me, it's way harder than it looks. But he was really one of the first to define the scene kid look and make it seem accessible to other kids. Because at, at the end of the day, he was just another kid on MySpace, and that's what it really felt like like he was just one of us and that was really really cool to have during that time and I know I talk about the image of these eras a lot but I cannot undercut how important image is in any scenario when it comes to the entertainment industry it's literally half of the battle in music and at the beginning Chris had both but so he dropped the Yippie EP and the Summer EP in 2009. They both had some re-recorded songs from his demo tape and a couple new ones. He also put out two other EPs that year. One was called Me and My Uke, which had arguably the biggest Never Shot Never song ever on it called Trouble. His picture on the artwork for this release was also such an aesthetic win for him. At this point, everything he was doing was right. The music was different, it wasn't neon, and it wasn't sugar-coated pop. The electronics he did have were different, and it was always a backdrop to his acoustics. He was, like, at the time, in a much lesser term, I'm not trying to overstate it, but he really was the Bob Dylan of the scene at that point. Emo folk for MySpace kids, that's what Never Shout Never was, and it wasn't like a very like hipster base folk like we got with like really coffee shop based shit it wasn't like trying to be something really cool and really edgy he was putting that through an emo myspace lens and it was working the music was different and he wasn't shy about his story he got kicked out of his parents house as a teenager lived out of his car played coffee shops and churches around the midwest for just enough money to get from show to show in some way he romanticized the lifestyle that lifestyle for a new generation of kids. I don't know any numbers, but there were a lot of figures being thrown at Chris during this time. And as we'll see in a bit, he really couldn't handle it. But to go from just this coffee shop playing kid, burning, living out of his car, playing these random shows, making 50 bucks a night, just enough gas to get to the next show, and really blowing up on the internet and then getting major label attention, it, it was unheard of at that time, and he, he, was, he really set the groundwork for a lot of things that came way later on in the industry. So he eventually signed a deal with Warner Brothers with a clause that he could also launch and release music on his own label called Loveway Records. He put out his first album in early 2010 called What Is Love? At this point, I think the kids still felt good about things. He made the record with Butch Walker, who, for those who don't know, is a bit of a known hit maker when it comes to the producing world. He's also got a couple bangers of his own that he's put out over the years. But it was really between this album and Chris's next album, Harmony, where something finally broke inside him. And you can literally watch it all happen on the Warped Tour documentary, No Room for Rockstars. I brought this up a couple weeks ago when I looked back on the 2010 lineup of Warped Tour. But at the beginning of the, the film, before the tour, he's got a face on. He gives an interview about how excited he was to spread love and peace on the tour that summer. You can read between every word. He wanted to believe what he was saying, but he didn't. A couple weeks in, and he's done. Like, he's literally done with it. 
that was the first exposure to playing really big shows and really big crowds that he had ever had. And he couldn't handle it. The crowds, the pressure, he injured his leg jumping off something during one of the sets and he had to use crutches for a while. There's a scene where he's trying to get to a place somewhere on that date, whatever the, the grounds were at that time, but he was trying to get a place and kids are literally swarming him, screaming his names, asking for pictures and autographs. He's obviously irritated. He wants them to leave. Then every interview after that is him saying just how much he wants to go home. He's over it. He'd been on the road for so long at that point, literally as a teenager, and then he finally realized he didn't want anything that he was about to get in terms of exposure and stardom. He released another album later that year called Harmony. He basically said in interviews in this cycle that he didn't even like the album. You could tell he was really forcing the cute acoustic MySpace aesthetic and image that launched him on it. And he, at this point, he was getting bounced around from Sire Records to Reprise, and he was just done with it. The story of Christopher Drew can literally be told in two of his songs, the closers on What is Love and Harmony. On What is Love, the past talks about how he was just miserable growing up. And the closer on Harmony is called Sellout. And it talks about how basically mad he was at himself for giving into the major label machine. And it was at that point that everyone who was watching knew that it was over. The next album, Time Travel, was his first with a full band. And honestly, it's a very solid album. But it, at the end of the day, it was just a lofty rock album. And it was the wrong one for him to release. It's nowhere near what he was making only just a year prior. And it was around this time that the infamous Brian Stars interview happened. For those who don't know or don't remember, Brian Stars was just a kid who got famous in the scene by just literally interviewing bands. There's a shit ton to him pack about him and honestly I never liked the dude so I really do hope Finn from the punk rock NBA really does his dive on Brian because there is a story there Brian was literally just the most normal teenage kid who just liked our world he wore the same blue Hollister t-shirt and khaki shorts in every interview and asked bands stupid questions like what their porn star names would be kids gravitated to him because he was literally just a fan Later on, it spiraled out of control with that scene revival. Ugh, like, it gives me shivers just thinking about it. That collective he made called My Digital Escape and blah, 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 so on and so forth. He's nowhere to be found right now. So I do hope Finn finds him and, and gives some closure on what the hell happened to Brian Stars. But if you want that dive, hit Finn up because I got no nostalgia or motivation to do that one. But as far as the intersection of Brian and Chris, I do think it's funny because there literally isn't one mention of this on Chris's Wikipedia page. It has definitely intentionally been edited out by someone. Basically, Brian drove seven hours to interview Chris before a show. He started asking Chris and Chris's two bandmates at the time his usual random questions, and Chris started being a dick and saying he, that Brian was basically making fun of the art he's creating by asking such stupid questions, and eventually the band walked off, and then Brian just filmed himself crying for a couple minutes afterwards, and they later buried the hatchet, and it was what it was, but... 
it was obvious that Chris had completely fallen off the wagon of, of where he was even just a year earlier. Then finally, everything just came crashing down. And you can tell that a lot of things in a personal manner kicked in for Chris. And he was dropped from the major label world. He released an album called Indigo and literally just lost all momentum that he had at that point. It was a very, very obscure rock album with just this acid aesthetic. And Chris was just completely off the reservoir. Finally, after this, he had a slight return to form on an album called Sunflower, but it was beyond too little too late for him. You'd think that's where the story ends and he just vanishes, but no. Much like All Time Low, Christopher Drew got a second chance at a major label shot. In 2015, he released an album called Black Cat on Warner Brothers. Again, his return. It was a rock album with some old school tendencies and just like a lot of weird art pop nerd rock shit on the back half. Kind of like like Bob Dylan meets the Talking Heads and then you throw in like two songs that have some emo shit that Warner could push. The most tolerable song is one of those. It's called Red Balloon. It was the single and probably the one that harks back to Chris's earliest shit. But the real story here is how much Warner was still willing to invest in Chris. You don't really see this from major labels too much anymore, especially giving bands a second chance from after they blew it so many years before. At the time of this cycle, there was even talk circling around the industry about Warner being willing to pay to get some of Chris's tattoos removed. That's insane. They were willing to go all in on this kid. Like they actually believed in him. But where it all came to a head again was summer 2015. We had given Chris a print feature for the album and his new image and everything in our APMA's issue at Alternative Press. In the interview, Chris talked about his newfound outlook on life, how he had gotten clean and sober and was doing a bunch of yoga and self-care and all this shit. And then he comes to the APMA's. You can tell they tried to bring back a little bit of his old image like they were trying to bring back some of that old magic he had the sailor hat on that sidebar they were literally selling those fucking sailor hats in hot topic at one point because of this kid that's how much of an impact he had but his hair was bleached slightly similar to the old style he had cuffed jean shorts on it wasn't none of that weird acid crazy weird gonzo side project bullshit that he was getting into years before and he had on this plain black t-shirt that just said in white letters, don't bother me, I'm just a drunk cunt. We were having him present an award that night with Bryce Avery from the Rocket Summer. He walks on stage, completely plastered, literally just throws his drink in the air, stumbles around on stage. It's not on the alt press cut on their YouTube page, but I could have sworn at one point he literally just laid down on the stage. I can't remember if if Warner asked that to be cut or if we just cut it or whatever, but I, I, I swear he literally at one point was on the stage and just laid down. Even if I just made that up as a memory, point is, he was on a different planet that night. Next thing I know, Matt and I are backstage, and he comes stumbling down one of the hallways of the Q Arena, literally bouncing from side to side, wall to wall, trying to keep himself upright, and two reps from Warner come fucking sprinting after him. And besides him milking some money off of a throwback tour a couple years later, that was literally the last time I ever heard of Chris Drew was watching him down that hallway. 
Now, to put everything into context that I just went through, his debut album, What Is Love, sold 21,000 units first week. For Context, another act from that era, Attack Attack, never even broke 20,000 from their three albums. And everyone fucking remembers Attack Attack, you know? Like, 21K on your debut album from Just MySpace hype? That's fantastic. I can't track down an official number for Harmony, but I did dig up a first week forecast article that put it in between 25 and 30,000. He was only going up despite a horrible summer on, on Warp Tour. He, his stock was still rising and the hype from MySpace was still there at that point. Obviously we know Harmony that the rest of that cycle kind of fucked it all up and by the time time travel came out, it was over. But fun fact, Harmony actually came out the same week as the Devil Wears Prada Zombie EP, and I only know that now because that article also gave a forecast for that one to do 10 to 15,000 first week. But like I said, Time Travel, the album after that, it literally dropped to 10,000. The next album, Indigo, it only charted at 194 in the top 200. That's easily less than 5,000 first week, and I'd even say 2,000. Chris had the world at his feet, and unlike someone like Craig Owens, who also had the world at his feet, but just pissed it away by being a dumbass, Chris just didn't want it. And it goes without saying that that's fine. I'm not shitting on Chris at all for not wanting to be a superstar. This is just the story of what happened. And it's really wild to think about what could have been if he just would have let the machine take over, you know, so to speak. The way he was releasing music at such a rapid pace and developing such a grassroots fan base is honestly very similar to that of the SoundCloud era movement that we saw a couple years back. Why did it take off both times? Because it fucking works. But as we saw, Chris was met with a fork in the road, superstar or art. And as we hear on Sellout, he chose art. And more times than not, when musicians choose art, they lose all commercial momentum. I know I just sound like a dick, but that's the truth. And before I end, I have to mention what many listeners said they wanted to hear about this dive, which is Chris's metal side project called Eat Me While I'm Hot, which he later changed the name to Eat Me While I'm Raw. It was literally just a parody metal band for the most part. It made fun of the breakdown era with these ridiculous structures and these comedic lyrics. And that being said, I bought all the shit they did with this. I literally have a physical copy back home of the first Eat Me While I'm Hot album, which is literally just called X Album X. This was 100% a joke, but the songs were actually cohesive structurally, and it was actually kind of funny how a kid from MySpace was making quality level heavy shit that could stand up to heavy scenes in the band at that time as a joke. But that is the story of Christopher Drew. A superstar that nearly was. But now he seems to be a proud parent. And to be 100% real with everyone, that obviously trumps any kind of commercial success that you could ever get. Thank you so much for listening this week. Next week, we have a final tally of the Dance Gavin Dance and Use first week numbers and an update on the rock radio chart. We'll see if Falling in Reverse is still at number one and then whatever else happens next week. So if you have any questions for the show, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm